0: Listen up. It's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trillor. Conversations in the
1: margins—a comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Hello, Annie, and welcome back to Speakeasy. How are you today?
0: Hello. I'm well. I'm back on the phone again, unfortunately, after really, uh, you know, nice experiences in the studio recently. But yeah, down the phone line today. Down hopefully, the all the technology.
1: Yes. Work.
0: And yes. how are
1: you today, Carla? Yeah, all good. It's Friday. Things could be worse. Yep. And we're, we're welcoming a, a terrific guest into the Speakeasy oh, Lounge yeah. today, Sue Kipax. Hello, Sue, and welcome.
2: Thank you very much, Carla, and hello, Annie.
1: Hi, Sue. Welcome Thank to you. our fabulous show. <laughs> So it's a great pleasure to to welcome Sue. And I've worked with Sue since two thousand and one. So it's um, yeah, that long, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Still haven't got rid of me, me too, yet, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Sue's a emeritus professor at, at UNSW, and and your, your life, Sue, was really intertwined with the National Centre in HIV Social Research as deputy director and then director for more than twelve years. A pioneer in research practice that became a, a key principle of the national strategies, and that that principle endures today um, about partnership between research and community. Your, you know, track record in academic terms is extraordinary, and and more than that, the impact of Sue's work on the HIV response yeah. is internationally recognised. So it's wonderful to have Thank you really. here, Sue. Thank you. Yeah, it's Nice really to be nice. here. Thank yeah, you. welcome. Thank you. So we wanted to right. so, to yeah. cast back a bit <laughs> and talk about <laughs> um, a Rhodes Fellowship, which you received one of these before it was actually called a Rhodes Scholarship for women. You were one of the very few first women um, who were awarded this. You know, and what do you carry with you from that experience?
2: I think I think what what. I remember most about those days in, in Oxford, I had two years as a fellow at, at Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford, was mainly the people I met, and, the, and one person in particular who became a really strong influence on the way I think about psychology and the way I understand people as social beings, um, and he was a philosopher actually, not a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I went to one of mm-hmm. his seminars and he came to a talk I gave at the very beginning and he liked what I said. So I went to seminars of his for about two years and he he, he was writing a book then called Social Being and he then followed it with a book called Personal Being, but he wrote a great deal about the social. And uh, he certainly convinced me that we are first and foremost social beings and we the connections between people are really essential to understanding human human behaviour or what I would call human mm-hmm. practice. Mm. Yeah. So I think yeah. that was the main... It was a very interesting two years, there were ups and downs. Um, Oxford, in some ways, is quite parochial, mm-hmm. I thought, in some My ways. <laughs> um, but but it was a fascinating two years and yeah. I'm very pleased I, wow. I went there. Amazing.
1: And and just a bit of a follow-up on that... the. Psychology, which you were um, finishing your PhD in at, yeah. at the time, was that very individualistic, and this notion of the social being was that a, mm. a departure from what you'd been doing? Or? No,
2: not completely. Yeah, I good. had a when I began my PhD. My PhD supervisor was at Sydney University. He was v- much more influenced by sociology than many other psychologists. Uh-huh. We we talked a lot about the Frankfurt School. So Adorno, Frankel, Brunswick, and others—he knew a lot about Lazarsfeld. So he had a very strong sense of the social, mm. and I think that's where mm. I began to develop an interest in the social. And in my last year at Sydney, before I went to Oxford, I actually went—I came across to UNSW and took in a year of Sol Ensel's lectures mm. in sociology. Right. Um, mm. So and so that was very influential as well. So it sort of it just changed the way I thought about human 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 action and and human practice.
0: Mm. Yeah, mm. right. So Sue, so, um, I, and I don't know if there, there's any link across to this, because sort of moving forward a little bit, but still looking um, back, you know, for me, you you've always been um, a real presence in the. Uh, Sort of HIV area, and particularly in relation to social research in HIV. So, um, I wonder if you can sort of tell us, you know, just what research looked like in those early days of HIV, and 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 in fact, how did you come to work in that? Space. I mean, does it have any links back to what you've just been talking about oh, around
2: these, <clears throat> yeah, you know, think, ideas of social yeah. beings or yeah, yeah? No, it's very strongly linked. So when I came back mm. to Australia from so Oxford, I got a job at Macquarie University and in social psychology, a lecturer in social social or so, a tutor to start with, and then a lecturer in social psychology, and I was. The department then at Macquarie was, in fact, a school of behavioural sciences. Mm. So there were sociologists, anthropologists, and psychologists. So it was yeah. a, an ideal place for me to be. And I spent a lot more time, in some ways, with the sociologists and the anthropologists than I did with the psychologists, although, you know, I was teaching psychology. So it, it helped me develop those notions that were much more sociologically and anthropologically, in mm-hmm. a sense, based. Um, and I just found myself becoming more and more inf- interested in the social aspects of, of human human behaviour. Um, yeah. So, and then what happened was eighty three, eighty four. Don yeah. Baxter, who was then I think he worked in the library, but he was a very early member of Acon or what became Acon. I think Acon had been formed, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he came out and spoke not to me but to Bob then Bob Connell a sociologist who was professor of sociology at at Macquarie and said, essentially said help, we need help. Mm. Um, Mm. We need to get some research done. The government won't fund us, but we'll we'll, we'll probably fund academics. So, and then Bob talked to Mm -hmm. me because he wanted, uh, we were going to do some qualitative, but also some quantitative research. And I had a very strong grounding in statistics Um, from my undergraduate degree and and was interested in survey research and in fact my PhD was on measurement so he and I got together with with people from the gay community Don Baxter, Lex Watson later Gary Dowsett and others and we formed this group and we put up a research proposal to look at what Bob always and I agreed with always called sexual practices the sexual practices of gay men um, not sexual behaviors and so it began there and I think it really fitted with what I'd picked up at Oxford. <coughs> I mean, form it was a, a continuum in a sense because Bob's thinking about the social was very similar in some ways to to uh, what I'd what I'd learnt at at Oxford under the under the wing, if you like, of this philosopher, Rom Harré. So it was a very nice sort of segue, I suppose. It was a very easy move in some ways. Um, and it, I must say, in retrospect, and I've written, it, I've written about this, but in retrospect, it also gave me a way out of a very individualistic psychology, uh, which well, I was actually yeah. beginning, beginning to feel slightly uncomfortable about. Uh-huh. And particularly yeah. when, when we got a new head of school and... Um, who who was a cognitive psychologist mm. and she didn't like much
1: <laughs> much of the social <laughs> she wasn't sure about
2: <laughs> what i was doing i don't think um yeah. so yeah. it gave me it gave me a, a way not a, yeah, a bit of a way out and it also allowed mm. me to explore the social and the anthropological more so yeah, yeah does that answer your question and you, you yeah. said what was, uh, was was research any different
0: yeah I don't, yeah yeah Yeah, I mean, I guess what it looked like in those days, but you've sort of partly gone to that
2: and how you came to work in the space. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the research that followed actually built on what Bob and I... And Bob was very important to me in those days because he was... I I was a lecturer, I think, in those days, maybe a senior lecturer, but he was a professor with with a really good reputation. Yeah. So it helped. Um, So the early research, in fact was good research and it, we built on it over time and in fact we influenced mm. other people mm. uh, around around mm. particularly in the western world with how to measure um practice not and to how to mm. focus on social norms and social practices rather than individual behavior and not to talk about mm. individual risk taking uh, mm. which always struck me as slightly ridiculous
1: yeah. and, and eventually that uh, early research rolled in or be- Formed the basis of what would become the national centre center, in, yeah, yeah. in yeah. HIV social research. Yeah. Did you have a clear vision of what that centre mm. would be at that time? Or? Uh, not
2: really, not really. And in fact, I, Bob withdrew at this point because he, we were appalled when the the other two centres were set up a couple of years earlier than mm-hmm. the social research centre. So there was the one in Epi in, in, uh, and Clinical, which became the Kirby Institute, and one in virology. Mm-hmm. And we were, Bob and I were both appalled when the social one was set up and... Um, they gave the directorship to a psychiatrist mm. who you know I got on with quite well and was a very interesting person uh but she didn't know about social research mm. and she didn't know anything about the social and she'd f- built her reputation by working with the i think the crew of the Voyager it was one of those big disasters. She did a lot of work around trauma oh. and i think nice. I think that the idea in the commonwealth's head or whoever, whoever had whoever Whoever dreamt, dreamt this up was that maybe she'd deal with the trauma and the stigma right. and I don't know. Anyway, okay. so we worked together, wow. and I became the dr- deputy director, and Bob withdrew um, because I thought, I mean, he should have got the directorship, but he didn't. Um, and so it went to Queensland University, because she was a professor of psychiatry at Queensland, but I became the deputy director. And then what happened? Of course, we kept getting grants. Mm. And the mm-hmm. Queen and the Queensland group didn't um, right and you know yeah. she was not ungracious about that I mean we had a good relationship um, yeah. but it, it should never have gone to her and I think she realized that as well and eventually the Commonwealth the whole th- not the fell apart but the Commonwealth decided to, to broaden the, the social Research Center and pulled in Latrobe. trobe and at that point um, uh, the professor at Queensland withdrew mm. and the center became the center of Mm. First of all, it, no, it didn't become a centre, I think, until we came, I can't remember now, whether it became a centre, at whether I became the director at, while I was still at Macquarie, or, yes, I did, I, I became the director while it was still at Macquarie, and then we were reviewed by Brian Turner, who was a professor of sociology, and at that point in time at Cambridge University. And he really liked what we were doing. Mm. And it was through Brian Turner that we came to UNSW. Mm. So he said, you should be working mm. somewhere else. And uh, and it, it was really good to work here mm. at UNSW because we were closer to the epidemiologists mm. and the clinicians. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it made sense. Yeah. So we came over here.
1: Mm. Which w- afforded all- That was 98, end of 98. Yeah. Afforded yeah. yeah. all sorts of new links, being exactly. closer and being able to work together. Yeah. and. Yeah. Inform the yeah. epidemiologists <laughs> yes. well a little bit a little bit yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in working with you, Sue, I, I've um, been so impressed with your characterization of the work that the centre did. And in fact, I used this in a meeting just this morning and yesterday. <laughs> So <laughs> the legacy lives on in all it sorts holds, of ways. But we we can't understand HIV and hepatitis C unless we understand sex and drugs and these in society. Yeah. Does that wisdom still hold? Have you elaborated on this that yeah. we can then learn from and use in meetings <laughs> tomorrow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, I just, it
2: still holds. And in some ways, even with the move to, to much more biomedical prevention, um, mm. I think it holds even... It's even more important because I'm not convinced about, about the way that move is taking place. But no, no, it's, it's absolutely central. And I mean, I went to a seminar only a few years ago, actually about four or five years ago, was the last big seminar I went to at Johns Hopkins, which is, you know, probably the best public health mm. department in the world. And there were 20 or 30 people. It was a three-day workshop or a two-day workshop. And there was a young medical epidemiologist there, very bright young woman, but a medico. Um, and the best way for me to talk about the socialists to recount this funny story. not it wasn't funny, but this story that she she came and talked to me one evening after I'd given a paper at this this workshop, and she said she didn't understand why she was working in Botswana and trying to convince adolescents and twenty-year-old late adolescents and twenty-year-old men to be circumcised for HIV prevention. And she said it wasn't working very well. And so I said, well, you know, do you know anything about the cultural beliefs of these Botswana mm. men? And she said, oh, no. Mm. <laughs> and I said to her- <laughs> Why would that be necessary? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, can you imagine somebody from Botswana? So she's an American working in Botswana. If, can you imagine someone from Botswana coming to the US a highly regarded person with you know, great, really good evidence and data, mm. telling the American public or maybe working through CDC or the American Public Health Association that all women should be circumcised because yeah. it prevents, I don't know, prevents something or other and that the evidence yeah. was very strong. And she looked at me and I could see the penny mm. beginning to drop mm. and I said, you know, <laughs> it would go down, it would be very difficult to convince. Mm. Yeah. Uh, American or Western women that they needed genital, what we mm. would call to be genitally mutilated, but but so yeah. it's, it's that sense that you know you 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 can't you can't you can't get people to do things if 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 the society through culture or through religious beliefs or cultural beliefs or through social norms just think it's beyond the pale, mm. and you may eventually mm. convince people. I mean, attitudes to yes. circumcision in this country have changed enormously, but in fact, change. away from mm. circumcision, not, not in favor of. But so, you know, you have to understand the social contexts of both drug use and in fact, sex work and mm-hmm. sexual practice mm-hmm. before you can attempt, I think, to change. And as I said, if we, w- if we really believed we had to change every individual, we mm. would be here until Doomsday. But if we can change social norms in the directions that that mm. the communities themselves are going, or can easily go, then prevention makes much more sense. So it's you know prevention is a very social thing, mm. I think, not mm. not a not a purely medical thing, and I think that's that's something mm. that I, I still, I still hold very strongly because mm. I I think mm. working with with people in medicine has, I mean you know I think some of the some of the how can I put it? I sometimes think the medical profession doesn't know a great deal about prevention. I mean, they're taught to treat, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not to prevent. Mm-hmm. Although some people, yeah. there have been some some amazing um, advocates like Alex Wodak, I think, mm-hmm. who've yeah. worked in prevention yeah. very successfully. So it's not, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, but I'm I thinking. think, I think, mm-hmm. I think medics are sometimes very uncomfortable about the social because I think one of the reasons why is that there's no I would argue no cause-effect yeah you know know, social practices are produced they're not caused most of the time Mm. and behavior is contingent it's not it's not something that's the the, you know the outcome Mm. of a of a of a a cause-effect relationship so you know, mm. they don't like contingency. They like certainty. Mm. <laughs> so, no, no gray here. <laughs> we just want black <laughs> or white. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think it's very important, mm. and I think it's really important for, to work with them, uh, not as handmaidens, mm. but with them mm. as equal partners. Mm. equal partners.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. So so speaking on those kinds of topics and, you know, social norms and the importance of understanding sex and drugs in society, one of the areas you've done quite a bit of work on is around the issue of negotiated safety and um, uh, noted in the research for this that you published on this in 1997, which I I think really highlights how groundbreaking uh, your work has been and continues to be. But, I mean, that issue had a profound impact on the HIV response. Um, can you give our listeners a bit of an overview of this and, and what do you think about that issue now, okay. you know, many years down the track? Yeah.
2: Mm. Well, the, the issue emerged in some of our very early data. We did some survey work in Sydney and in Canberra. And, mm-hmm. and I kept looking at the data thinking, yeah, this is very strange because it was the very highly professional, well-educated, highly paid group of men who weren't using condoms with their regular partners. And and the pattern was very, very clear. And I kept thinking, something must be happening here, that that it's not just that they're taking risks. Um, Mm. And in those days, everybody was condoms always. And here was this very clear pattern, but amongst this particular group of men in these two cities, that was very different. So I began to think about what it might be. And they were using condoms with their casual partners, but not with the regular partners. And so we began, we set up a qualitative um, research method, uh, research uh, study. And we began to talk to men who were doing this. And uh, it became very clear that they were being very sensible. They were being tested, their partners were being tested, they were both negative. They couldn't infect each other if they tried. Um, Certainly not through sex. so they stopped using condoms with their regular partner. And out of that early research, the AIDS Council of New South Wales developed what became the talk, test, test, trust strategy. Yes. And that, that was in, the I think, the early 90s. I can't remember when it was actually. So, I mean, I think early 90s. Mm-hmm. Or before that, maybe, no, maybe it would have been later than that, because after the paper was published, I think, around about the same time, mid-90s. And there were lots of people who are very anxious about it. Mm. And I can remember the first paper I think okay. I gave I gave in England at a workshop or at a seminar and people went <gasps> when I said, you know, you don't always have to use condoms. Because mm. and, and, <laughs> and, and 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 you know, I think there is some reason behind that. I mean, the New Zealand New Zealanders who've had a very successful response to HIV were very concerned about the negotiated safety stuff. Mm. Um and in some ways, it then became serosorting, which has a has a downside mm. as well as an upside. But there are still people using it. Heterosexuals use it. Uh, lots of people using. it. In fact, I read a paper the other day that made reference to mm. the heterosexuals use of um, negotiated safety, or you know, mm-hmm. being tested, and and people get tested much more frequently now. And it seems to me a very sensible strategy. It still mm. does. Mm. Um, I don't know how much people know about it anymore, or whether young young men coming into the com- into the community know about it. But, but
1: uh, I, I guess it's um, been complicated, like, not complicated in a bad way, but become more complex with mm. um, highly yeah. active, highly effective treatments yeah. and prep as yeah. well yeah. in yeah. the space. And, yeah. yeah,
2: and I think I think well, yeah. what was the other thing that was developed later? was you know if you've got undetectable viral load the likelihood you're going to infect anybody mm. is quite small so you know there are all these ways that that mm. i think sensibly people can dismiss or not dismiss but not use condoms mm. but you know there are there are there are issues related to that as well like like uh, sexually transmissible mm. infections and so on mm.
1: yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, flying uh-huh. in the face of conventions. <laughs> 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 Don't worry about the condoms as long as these other strategies are in place. Yeah. I'm sure that was a, a well, shocking for people. Yeah, well, I yeah. mean,
2: Jeffrey Jin, I think, up at Kirby, did mm. some really interesting survey work. And it certainly it was shown that it was, in general, a safe strategy.
1: Mm. So an- another um, key moment in working with you, Sue, for me, was the, your... Um, reflection and and writing about reflexive practice in partnerships between Mm. research and practice and um you know I think we use the short your shorthand of mind the gap uh, for a lot of years and it still (laughs) resonates and that that the idea is I understand it is that all sides of the partnership benefit from being able to have some distance and take a critical Mm -hmm. look at the the others has your de- thinking on this developed since you published this, which was again like 2002? It was very. Yeah, I think yeah, I mean, it's, imagine, it's, yeah. it's
2: in some of the papers that Neve Stevenson and I have written since then that were published in the American Journal of Public Health. Mm-hmm. But but it's got two aspects. One is the gap. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of people in the early days who were a bit um, weary of women interviewing gay men. Right. Um, but certainly in my experience, those interviews. Generally, generally went very well. In fact, lots of gay men didn't want to be interviewed by heterosexual men mm-hmm. but were happy to be interviewed by women. Um, and I, some, we did a bit of work with young heterosexuals once and I found that a bit close. So it's quite interesting um, that that gap helps in some ways. But, but more importantly, I think, uh, when I did philosophy when I was at university many, many years ago, I came across an Italian philosopher called Vico. And Vico talked about different ways of knowing different sorts of knowledge and one of the sorts of knowledge he talked about was the knowledge of uh knowing what it's like to be a drug user knowing what it's like to be a sex Mm. worker knowing what it's like to be a gay man and he argued that that knowledge was really important and i think you know that's part of the crossing that gap Mm. that you actually have to understand from their point of view if if you're working with what often referred to as the other but if you're working with people who have a a different experience from you Mm -hmm. then you need to understand the world from their point of view as well but you need I think really importantly to then cross back (laughs) over the divide and so you've got to view the world from the point of view of of being a scientist but also from the point of view of the the world of the people that you're investigating or their practices Mm -hmm. so that that Mm -hmm. minding the gap and crossing the gap and being reflexive mm. is, mm. in fact, that's what the fl- reflexivity mm. is about. You, you, you put on, mm. if you like, you try and stand in their shoes, but you also try and stand in your own shoes. Mm. And that moving mm. backwards and forwards, I think, is really important. And it's something anthropologists, of course, do all the time mm. um, in what yeah. they call EMIC, I think, research, where you become part of the, the community or part of the, the group you're studying. So I think mm. I th- that's still very important, and that partnership... I think was essential, um, yes. and I think it's why it's been important in this country, and why it was so successful in this country. That working with 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 people most affected by HIV was mm. absolutely essential, and mm. not treating them as objects, but mm. treating them as human beings with not just you know, with their own knowledges, and those knowledges are really very important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so that's still very central. And as I said, Neve Stevenson and I've published a couple of papers around those points. Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I guess we're kind of making our way to the end of the interview now, Sue, and so I guess, you know, a final question, I wanted to, um, you know, I, get you, I guess get you to reflect a little bit on, on, you know, what the future holds. I mean, you've got this enormous wealth of experience and expertise to draw upon, and we've talked about some of your your work here this afternoon, but, um, you know, what, what's your passions in research now? What What's next? What are you looking at at the
2: moment? I'm still I'm still looking still working in HIV in and not a not a hands on mm. way. I've stopped putting up my hands for research money. Um, <laughs> not in in some ways I don't want to do that anymore. But I've spent a lot of time reflecting, and I published um, mm. a book in, not last year the year before working in. In HIV prevention, called Socialising the Biomedicine. Socialising the biomedical, I mean. Uh, I think me- biomedicine needs socialising, um, and I'm still working in that area. I'm editing the co editor of the Journal of the International AIDS Society, and I work with a, a clinician yeah. and a biomedic. And, you know, that's been very interesting, and it continues. It's not, not it's a challenge, but, you know, It's been very good to work work with them. Mm. Um, But I'm very, I'm very, not not very anxious. I'm concerned at the moment about, particularly about the rhetoric about the end of AIDS. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm at the moment thinking about editing a book with a couple of colleagues. And I Mm -hmm. came across a paper, in fact, a 2016 Lancet paper, but only came across it quite recently, And in this, it's it's not a research paper, it's a commentary in The Lancet in 2016, where in fact it states that the number of new infections amongst adults, number of new HIV infections amongst adults worldwide in 2015 is higher than in 2010. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric around. I think there are some countries that are doing well. There are some countries that are not doing well at all. The, yeah. the infection rates in Southern Africa are still extraordinarily high. We're not mm. seeing the downturn that everybody's been jumping up and down about with regard to treatment as prevention and with regard to PrEP. I think PrEP has got a lot of promise, but I think it has a lot of problems. Uh, I think if I were a drug user, I wouldn't touch PrEP with a barge pole. If you can get a clean little, nah. <laughs> why on earth would you swallow? <laughs> swallow I agree. And I think a lot of sex workers are very anxious about mm. being positioned and pushed use PrEP because that you know it just enables their clients not to use condoms. Um, or and what particularly what, when
0: with drug use food, we haven't even in many countries yeah. done needle and syringe exactly. programs. Exactly. Exactly. So I think I think
2: I think and some of the countries where there's been a big increase in HIV is amongst the the health you know the countries that were part of the Russian Federation where a lot of that is through drug use. So. You know, mm. I think there's some real mm-hmm. issues to be dealt with, and and I'm just a little bit worried about what I would call the biomedicalisation of prevention. Mm. Not that not that I'm opposed to prep, but I think we need to think very carefully about who uses it and when and how. Um, and certainly in in all the data I've seen recently, condom use is just you know disappearing, and I think that's a real problem for some for some populations Mm. so yeah and I think there's still work to do but I've become interested in I suppose the relationship between biomedicine and and social and Mm. how one can happily you know work together because I really think we need to work together
1: yeah we'll we'll put up the link to your previous book and some of these key papers on the the website Yeah, and I I just wanted Mm -hmm. to also before we finish um, remark on and remember June Crawford as a great collaborator Mm. and a terrific mentor to many at the national center over her long life indeed yeah no i miss
2: her Mm. very much actually Mm. yeah
1: yeah yeah. Well, thanks so Thank much you. for being in our um, not yeah. so sweaty today speakeasy <laughs> studio. <laughs> no, it's quite cool. It's amazing. A, really a...
0: great to hear some of the history of how things came about, and yeah. yeah, just reflecting back on all those things. Some of the things that you know are kind of taken for granted a bit now. it's yeah. really fascinating just to hear yeah. from you how some of those things. Started, you know, and the the kind of origins of some of those initiatives.
2: Yeah. So. I suppose I should should say just to end up. I mean, for me, it's been an extraordinarily, what's the word, um, challenging but but very rewarding. Um, you know, years of work. I mean, I've really enjoyed it as well as mm. fan, finding it challenging. And uh, mm. someone once sent, said to me, Sue, you've always lived in opposition, <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> and
2: opposition then to whatever." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but but in a sense, I think that's partly true, but I mean, it makes one think if mm. if you di- disagree with people that you're working with, then it makes you really think about, about, you know, where you're going and what you're doing. But, you know, I have, I've found the work and working with gay communities and with drug users and sex workers, uh, really, you know, it's been a huge learning experience for me too, and one that I've enjoyed.
1: Mm. Well, thanks yeah. so much, and for...
0: everyone has enjoyed working with you as well. So um, yes, yeah. absolutely.
1: So we'll we'll, we'll wrap sure. up, and um yep. we'll be back in the studio next month. But, but thanks again to you Sue are. for a terrific time today.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye, bye,
0: Annie. <laughs> For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to http csrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.